The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new... I can't wait. OK, I'm doing it again. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, the independent think tank and charity campaigning for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org. Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, uh, and welcome. Sorry, hold, hold it right there, Kirsty, please. Um, because actually, this week the tables have turned, my friend, um, and uh, it's actually going to be me, Jessie Barnard, from the New Economics Foundation, the one who can't pronounce the credits, uh, interviewing <laughs> you about the highlights and the lowlights of uh, 215. <laughs> <laughs> 2015 in economics. <laughs> My name is Kirsty Styles, and I'm here with James Meadway, who's a senior economist at NEF, for the weekly economics briefing, the very first in a series of podcasts where we try and make economics and economists a bit less dull. Welcome back to the New Economics Foundation's weekly economics podcast. We've got a very special guest, Stephen Devlin. It's Christine Berry. It's Yuan Yang. It's Olivier Valakrius. It's Mary Robertson. Josh Ryan Collins. Alice Martin. Maverick economist Steve Keane. Eva Karbovsky. Fan Boyd. Leo Murray. Holly Tranow. Dave Powell and Ollie Hayes from comedy podcast Sustainababble. This week, James Meadway is back. Six-parter about what, James? About neoliberalism, about a history and a guide to neoliberalism. For okay. beginners, we're going to call it the Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. You sound excited as well. I am excited. Knock, knock. Who's there? Milton Friedman. <laughs> you said to me that if the exit poll was right, you'd eat your hat. Well, this Andrew. is a hat. The Greek economy is in dire straits. A long-term economic plan. Long-term economic plan. Long-term plan. Long-term economic plan. Long-term economic plan. Okay, so dream scenario, James. We've uh, had a hopefully bloodless revolution and you're our new chancellor. Is that is that a thing? Is that going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kirsty, you're normally the interviewer, but not today, my friend. Uh, because today it's me asking the questions all about the stuff you've been covering on this podcast for the past year because you were there. So, if you cast your mind back, cast it back a bit further, <laughs> back to the beginning of uh, the year, back in February when you started, can you tell me a bit about what's going on then? I can indeed, Jesse. That sounds like it's going to be quite the interrogation. So, uh, we had um, episodes about growth. We had what the F is uh, inflation, and I'm still trying to work that out. Something about a basket of... of things from the shop, eye-watering global debt, and of course, the beginning of the Greek crisis. Um, but quite early on was George Osborne's first budget, and we got my BEF, that's best economic friend, James Meadway, to play Chancellor. So last week was hashtag budget 2015, and we can all be left walking tall um, in our comeback country, according to uh, Chancellor George Osborne. So James, you've obviously had a look at the budget. What should the headlines have been? 
Uh, all, all spin and no substance, I think, would have been more appropriate, although obviously uh, much of the press chose to report this as the sun is shining once more and, and all the rest of it. Uh, as Osborne has done for the last five years now, somewhat disturbingly, he's um, presented a bunch of figures, attempted to make uh, the best of a bad job, but really has very, very little to report in terms of, for example, meeting his original target on, on closing the deficit. He's missed that by a, a country mile and then some. The deficit this year is about £90 billion. He thought he was going to close it this year. He he uh, claimed that uh, living standards would be rising over 2015. This is based on a projection as to what will happen over the rest of the year. Uh, essentially, living standards, as has become clear, have fallen since he, he became Chancellor. So again, it's this kind of spin, it's using numbers in this rather dubious fashion. So if the headlines reported on that, I think you get a more accurate impression of the thing. So we're going to rewind to the budget. You're the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I think that makes me the leader of the opposition. So you're going to come up to the budget dispatch box and give us your pre-election giveaway. What would you say instead? I now call Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer. Well, the first one is, uh, I'd say very clearly and simply, that austerity has failed. It's failed people in this country. The only people it's worked for are uh, the coalition's friends in the City of London and maybe one or two others, and that we need to get rid of the target for uh, closing the deficit and get rid of the target for reducing debt as a share of national income. And we'll do this to make sure that we have proper funding for all those departments that aren't protected and make sure there's a bit of extra funding for things like the NHS and education and the rest of it. And we can do this because we know that when the government spends money, this creates more wealth in the rest of the economy. This means you get growth. It means you get people being paid more. It means you get more taxes back in. And that's how you should be running the economy, not this mad idea that just by cutting spending, uh, you'll be able to somehow also reduce the deficit. This has barely happened. Order. We want to get through this budget. The sooner we get through, the better, and then we can debate it. Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, so you've been covering the general goings-on of George Osborne and the Parliament this year. Tell us a little bit more about what the aftermath of that budget was. OK, so it was the, the pre-election budget, and for good or for ill, it led them on to a winner. Uh, in that time, we also did an episode on feminist economics, what Polly Trenow uh, called social infrastructure like hospitals versus willy waivers like HS2. And, of course, the carbon bubble, hashtag keep it in the ground. But we were mainly trying to work out what effect the election would have on the economy and making, frankly, as many dodgy predictions as a lot of other commentators did. Uh, in the end, we found ourselves back with James in May covering the Queen's speech, uh, the first Queen's speech of a Conservative government. Uh, that's not be confused, Jesse, with the now infamous Queen's Peach. I would never confuse it with that. <laughs> so, James, it was a big day uh, for the Queen last week. She got to dress up all fancy for the misleadingly called Queen's Speech. What is the Queen's Speech, James? Well, the Queen's Speech is the, the centrepiece of the sort of strange old ritual of the state opening of Parliament where the Queen, uh, as you say, dresses up all fancy, sits on a golden throne in the House of Lords, invites everyone to come in and listen to a readout, a list of things that the government of the day wants to do over the next year. So it's a big list of bills that, in this case, the Conservative government intend to introduce. OK, so there were a couple of big things that came up, the um, EU referendum, of course, and the revival of the Snoopers Charter. Um, but what specific economic policies uh, were outlined in the Queen's speech? Well, there's a few of them. It's, it's slightly vague because it's quite a short speech and they can't say too much about any of this. But there's uh, a freeze on uh, some kinds of benefits. So working age benefits, tax credits and child benefits are going to be frozen. They're not going to increase those uh, for two years from April 2016. Uh, there is a commitment, a slightly, again, slightly vague commitment 
commitment for the government is going to have a target of creating two million new jobs over the next five years or so. And they're going to be uh, increasing the personal allowance so that anyone who's on the minimum wage won't be paying income tax. Uh, that's the theory behind that one. Final one, of course, and the peculiar one is the tax lock commitment. This is the idea that the government's going to write a bill that will make it illegal for George Osborne to increase income taxes, national insurance or VAT. Hmm. Well, we can already hear there was some U-turning on some of those policies before the end of the year, but we shall return to that later. Um, so, Kirsty, tell us what was going on in the rest of UK politics at that time. So we recovered the realities of the Northern Powerhouse uh, announcement. That's nothing to do with me, the Northern Powerhouse. Uh, and the UK uh, went into deflation. Unfortunately, we never reached stagflation, which is my favourite sounding terrible econ phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about you. Uh, and while all this is going on, the government was also trying to sell off our stake in RBS. Uh, for those who don't remember, that was the bank that sank. So we talked to Christine Berry about that. Um, so you've mentioned uh, that um, uh, the conversation uh, past, after the financial crisis was about kind of banks being too big to fail. What do you think that we should do with RBS instead? Well, NEF has published research proposing that we could turn RBS into a network of local banks. Um, so 130 banks in the UK um, based on local authority boundaries, um, plus being split up into parts that would be the responsibility of the devolved administrations in Scotland, um, Wales and Northern Ireland. And those would be not kind of banks that were run centrally from Whitehall. They would be stakeholder banks um, with representation in their governance from consumers, from SMEs, from the local community. Uh, they would have a public service mandate to only lend in their local area, to lend to SMEs and to keep branches open and provide universal access to basic banking services. Um, and that's basically modelled on types of bank that exist in almost every other major developed country apart from the, um, the UK. Uh, so in Germany, they have the Sparkassen, which are basically public savings banks. And the kind of banks that we're looking at splitting RBS into are roughly the same sort of size and order of magnitude as the Sparkassen in Germany. Um, and the UK is really, really unusual. It's a real outlier in not having any banks of this type. We've just completely reliant on these kind of big five um, mega banks based in London. And so we think that the fact that we own RBS gives us a really unique opportunity to kind of fix that structural problem with our banking system. Love that woman. Um, so there's a lot of lessons there from the rest of the world, Kirsty, and I know you're a lady of the world. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about what the kind of global outlook on economics was in 2015. So as I said at the beginning, we talked about global debt early on. Uh, we also had special guest Steve Keen, who uh, told us about that smug moment when he realised he was going to predict the crash. <laughs> There's a conventional way of thinking about the economy that I can show somebody on a, on a beer coaster in about five minutes is why that's a bad idea. Uh, and we talked to James, of course, about the economic situation in China. Uh, but the main world economic story of the year was the Greek crisis. Uh, at the height of that, back in June, we talked to economist Olivier Varakoulias about it. OK, and what do you think the people of Greece are, are, are thinking? We've seen lots and lots of people on the streets um, who don't want to leave Europe. Um, what, what's the kind of feeling there? Well, it's you see, I think the Greek society is starting to get very polarized on this issue. It's true that most people uh, state that they would like to stay in the Eurozone. But on the other hand, they also state that they don't want to hear about further pension cuts. They don't want to hear about more VAT increases. They don't want to hear about more austerity. So the question there, and this is something we don't actually know, and we could only know through a referendum, is what is the hierarchy? 
of these preferences. This is far from clear. And what we tend to see in, in all the, the, the polls that are being done and opin the opinion polls um, is that there is a very big class divide. People who have savings right, are more prone to want to stay in the Eurozone because evidently, you know, an exit would be very problematic. Pensioners who depend on, you know, their savings accumulated through their lifetime are also very reluctant to get out of the Eurozone. Younger people and working class people, on the other hand, have absolutely nothing to lose from it in the sense that, you know, they don't have these savings. They, they don't have Euros anyway in their pockets. Uh, they're unemployed. They have no prospects. And therefore, for them, the idea of getting out of the Eurozone may offer some prospects. Not saying it will, I'm saying that's how they perceive it. So I think we really have a clash emerging within Greek society about these two things. Oh, mad to listen to that now, knowing what we know about how it all turned out with the Greek referendum. Um, I think they definitely win the award for the most cray political year. Uh, but anyway, back to the UK. There was another budget in July. So what did the government have in store for us economically in the second half of the year? Yeah, so in the second half of the year, we covered the Bank of England bill and the trade union bill too, which is trying to put further restrictions on our trade unions. Uh, but the Charter for Budget Responsibility announced in the budget, uh, which actually forced governments to run a surplus, was the big headline economic policy in October. So this charter means that governments won't be able to spend any more than they bring in in taxes. Um, isn't that a sensible thing? You would think so. For a household, that might be a sensible thing. But even for us as a household, we tend to have debt, right? We can't just buy a house without taking out a loan. Most students have student debt because it has become incredibly expensive to study in this country. So everyone has debt. And... That's even more the case for a government because a government doesn't work like a household. It's typically compared to a household, but it's more like a firm, really. And firms regularly run um, deficits and have a lot of debt as well because they need to invest. And quite often they don't have enough money to invest into the future. Ideally, though, I prefer to earn enough to pay for all of my hipster trinkets and, and not have a credit card or an overdraft uh, or a student debt of £27,000 or so. Um, surely uh, it's an aspiration for a government to do that. Isn't that what this charter is all about? In fact, it's kind of conflating economics of a household with what a government is. So government represents a country, a government represents us and society. And what we need is infrastructure, we need better hospitals, we need better roads, we need to invest in social housing, as I said. And all of that means we need to invest beyond what we necessarily can get in in terms of tax in a given tax year. So as I said, it makes much more sense to compare a government to a firm. And in that sense, it's not a bad thing at all to take out debt. It might increase growth and increase tax revenue in the future. That was Eva Kowalski from Kingston University telling exactly why our government debt isn't exactly the same as um, what you do at home. And George Osborne just couldn't stop. He loves it. Uh, and the, we've just heard his third big statement of the year to Parliament just a few weeks ago, which was the Comprehensive Spending Review, uh, where you had Yuan Yang, legend, on to speak about that. Yeah, so we had uh, Yuan on actually earlier in the year talking about Rethinking Economics, which is a great student group that she helped to found that campaigns for better economics education, uh, which you might say some of our politicians could benefit from. Uh, and then uh, we also had her back on to talk about all of the U-turns uh, that you already alluded to in the autumn statement. 
George Osborne was in Parliament again last week talking about his long-term economic plan. The third time this year. Um, Is there actually anything new we should be talking about from the Comprehensive Spending Review? There's, of course, more detail that we have now after the autumn statement than we had in May. But I think what George Osmond has shown is that he is fully willing to stick by his own self-imposed rule of chasing a surplus by 2020 and by scaling back the size of the state to the, the smallest in 30 years. Although the big new thing that was t- discussed widely was the U-turn on tax credits. So following the defeat in the Lords, um, Osborne is no longer going to push through the cuts to tax credits. Actually, that's not really that much news at all because by 2020, universal credit will be phased in. Um, And according to Andrew Hood at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, many of the cuts that will come in with universal credit will simply be the same as the tax credit cuts that we were expecting this week anyhow. So we're simply delaying the pain that will hit the poorest fifth of earners in the UK and hit them very deeply. Um, We're delaying that till uh, 2020, but it will still come. But it's not over yet, Kirsty. Um, You did an episode on airport expansion and word on the street is that uh, we'll be getting a decision about whether Heathrow will be expanding or not this coming week. Um, We've also got COP21, the UN climate talks going on as we speak, uh, with the results having huge consequences for our environment and economy. So tell us about that. Yeah, our environment, our economy and world peace, as Naomi Klein uh, told us in a video at COP earlier this week. So, yeah, we spoke to our fellow podcast buddies, Dave Powell and Ollie Hayes from the comedy podcast Sustainababble about that. Uh, We laughed and I cried a bit, to be honest. So moving on to the international stage, there's a big UN conference coming up about climate change called COP21, uh, starting at the end of the month in Paris. What's going to be going on there? Well, there'll be a lot of Red Bull. Uh, towards the end of the, the, the well, you always get two weeks of like civilized talks, and they're always like, "Yeah, we're going to finish on Saturday," and then on Saturday they start the actual talks, and it goes kind of way through the night. Lots of Red Bull, people who haven't slept for three days, making terrible decisions about the most important thing um, in the planet. That is really how people hiding in cupboards so that they don't get chucked out of rooms. It all gets absolutely bizarre who, 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 which people who are these people well usually campaigners in fairness because <laughs> they by that stage the, the negotiators will have got cross and tried to eject them but it's a very important is a very important conference um, and essentially they're looking to, to get to a stage where there is a legally binding deal on where the global community is going to go with emissions we are going to are we or are we not going to try and keep below this magic two degrees of warming threshold um, and that's what you know they're going to try and thrash out well Kirsty. Apart from top-notch economic political bans, there's been one more thing that's been constant throughout this year for you in the weekly Economics podcast. Do you know what it is? Embarrassing myself? Mm. <laughs> Another. <laughs> <laughs> it's our little friend, regular guest James Meadway, who also presented the very popular Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism series with you and who we haven't heard so much on the podcast recently because he's moved on to pastures new but you know this is your life styley we've brought him back to say goodbye bring him in Hugh oh my goodness you haven't aged a day 
you, Kirsty. Not your view. How are you doing, my friend? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, uh, lively and engaging as ever, James. Lively and engaging, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Only too well. Yes. Uh, so, are you ask me how, did you ask me how I was? I did ask you how you were. How, okay. how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Right, give each other a hug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, James, we have a present for you. Oh, fantastic. Um, it's a hat. I need to describe what this. What colour is it, James? It's, it's a red and white hat with a bobble on the top. I do believe it might be a Christmas <laughs> hat of some sort. No, Thank we actually so commissioned much. that specially. That's a, oh, really? yeah, right. a unique... entirely novel design of, of headwear. Yeah, I came up with that. Wow. I drew it myself wow. and somebody that's, made it that's for That's impressive. It's one of your other hidden talents, <laughs> as previously discussed. You're supposed to put yeah. it on, James. Don't be so ungrateful. Right. Stop your snogging. <laughs> it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye, Kirsty and James. It's been nice for us all, wasn't it? <laughs> um, so well, now it's just, just left to me, isn't it? So thanks um, to everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jesse, for um, lively and engaging mm. questions in my absence. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to the first year of this podcast. It's been a great one uh, for us, uh, particularly as we have nothing to compare it to. Uh, and a particular thanks to those of you who have donated to bring us back for a new series in the new year. We're coming back because of you. Um, so don't forget to listen back to the past episodes while we're away and especially our Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism series, now uh, its own spin-off podcast. Thanks to all of the guests we've had on uh, all year and a special thanks to you, James, and good luck on your next adventure, you flipping lovely econo man. Thank you. That was that was brilliant. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we'll be back in the new year and I'll promise to make it on time. <laughs> <laughs>